0: Guys, we are back in Acts today. We're going to be finishing out Acts chapter 12 and going into Acts 13. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn over there, that would be awesome. Ah, I think I found this. This is not plugged in. Hold on. Hold on. The microphone, not my butt. Like, I pay you to be my pastor. Why do you say things? Why do you talk like this? I'm sorry. Okay. Finishing out Acts chapter 12, going into Acts 13 today. Uh, Guys, I've been out of the pulpit for a couple weeks. Can you tell? Um, I'm so glad you guys gave me uh, the gift to go and celebrate my anniversary and hang out with Kim and, and travel and go to camp and do all these things. But I am stoked to be back in this space, and I am excited to jump back in this text as we get to this, where we're ending at 12, jumping into 13, I want to put this in a specific context. So I got to go to camp last week with the students. And if you've never gotten the blessing of going to a church camp, I'm going to tell you something. You have missed out. There is something magical. About church camp. There is something about stepping outside your context for a period of time without all the distractions of normal life, without your cell phone beeping constantly, without the need to like get notifications and stay up to date. There's something about being surrounded by people who not just love Jesus, but are talking about him all day long, where your entire day is just gospel, 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 eat, gospel, 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 eat, gospel, 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 eat, then go to bed. And then it just starts over. There's something about that that's just, it's just so wonderful. You should sign up to be an adult leader next year at camp. That's what I'm really saying. Uh, but I got the privilege of seeing our amazing youth workers love and serve our students, encourage them in Christ, call them up to, to what God actually has for them. And it really is, guys, I'm, I'm so grateful for your prayers over the last week. And I know a lot of you were praying over these kids and praying over this week because we saw the Spirit work. There was fruit to your prayers. We saw God call people into greater levels of obedience and repentance and freedom in our church and the churches that were there. It was such an amazing time. I say that because this, today we're gonna be talking about three functions within a life of the believer in the church. We're going to be talking about the necessity of giving yourself over to the regular mundane day-to-day life of the church. We're going to be talking about how the church gathers to disciple one another, and we're going to talk about how the church joyfully sends their best on mission. And here's how cool God is. I got to see all three of these things powerfully on display at church camp last week. I got to see the fruit that is born when people actually do commit themselves to the day-to-day grind in and out of loving Jesus and loving the people that are right in front of them. I got to see what what it looks like when a local church does the work it's been called to do for the long haul. I got to see the church encouraging each other in the truth of the gospel, what what it looks like when we really practically commit ourselves to not just being together, but being together to proclaim the gospel to one another. That is discipleship. And and I got to see what it looks like practically when the church is willing to send people away from them outside of their local church to go and do the work of proclaiming the gospel to people who need it. What a wonderful and beautiful life we've been called to in Christ. So let's jump into Acts. We've got a short passage today, but I think it's going to be simple and beautiful in how the Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. Acts chapter 12, we're starting in verse 25, and it says this, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today pray with me. Father, we ask humbly that you would speak through your word today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate the text, that you would be our discipler and our teacher, that even in just a few short words and a short story, that you would show yourself clearly in a way that our hearts actually need. Draw us to life. Draw us to repentance. Call us out through your word. God, you tell us, you tell us that your word cuts and divides, that it convicts. God, we we come before you today asking that you would cut and convict, that we would be challenged in the way we need to be challenged and encouraged in the way we need to be encouraged, and that we would leave here today having heard from you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, This may seem a little familiar. We looked at this passage last fall when we went through our series on the life of the church called Visible. I actually preached through this text and told you that if you were there that Sunday, you could skip today. But now you're already here, so it's too late. If you forgot, that's on you. Uh, So hopefully... (laughs) See, notice I didn't tell you. I I gave you one warning in September, and that was it. I didn't didn't tell you we were jumping back. It's, It's tricky. Hopefully, some of you actually today will remember a little bit of what we 're talking about today because there 's going to be a little bit of overlap, but I actually think this is going to be a, a way better examination of the text for us because we 're going to look at it in light of our larger study in Acts up to this point. The actual story here is pretty simple, but, but essentially, I just wanna, I want to make sure we walk through this text kind of in its context we 're going to remind ourselves of the larger story of acts i 'm going to point out a, just a couple things I think that will help clarify what 's going on here. One kind of textual note that we may be can miss in the English, this will help spell out a bigger discussion for today that I've already outlined. We're going to talk about the necessity of giving yourself over to the regular, mundane, day-to-day life of the church. We're going to talk about how the church gathers to disciple one another, and we're going to talk about how the church joyfully sends their best on mission. As we walk through these, we're going to walk through a couple different texts, one from Hebrews, one from Corinthians, and one from Galatians, but it's all going to bring us back to to these, these three simple truths that we see lived out here in this really short little text. I think we're going to end, honestly, with just some time of reflection on on the clear and simple things that Jesus is calling us to as his followers. And then we'll just spend some time, we'll take communion, we'll go home. Sound good? Awesome. So what's the actual story here? We, we've already been introduced to the church at Antioch a couple weeks ago. We mentioned this a couple of times, but Acts as a whole is transitioning its focus from the mother church in Jerusalem to Antioch and then the global missionary movement. They, most scholars actually say Acts 13.1 is kind of the transition from Acts part 1 to Acts part 2. So Acts, in the beginning, really focuses on what is God doing in the beginnings of the church through the church in Jerusalem, and even when the texts step outside of Jerusalem, it's usually from the perspective of what did Jerusalem church people do outside of Jerusalem, right? But but at this point, we're making a solid break We're stepping away from what God was doing in the mother church, and specifically through the leader, Peter, and we're going to begin to look at the global missions movement through the lens of the apostle Paul and the ministry of the church at Antioch. For the rest of the book of Acts, 13 through 28, we're only going to come back to Jerusalem twice. The rest of the story is really going to focus on the fruit of the ministry born by this little church in Antioch that we see do something amazingly simple but amazingly hard in this text right here. The church in Antioch rose to prominence essentially when persecution drove to many of the Christians out of Jerusalem. They scattered to a lot of places, but, but for whatever reason, Antioch, it just worked and it, gr- it gained a sort of critical mass first. So as the church in Jerusalem was kind of keeping track of where the movement was going in other major cities, Antioch began to become big enough that it actually really was comparable in size and ministry and resources to the mother church in Jerusalem, to the point that the church in Jerusalem says, hey, they probably need some elders there. And so they send Barnabas to go assess the health of this church. Barnabas, by the way, we've read about a couple times in Acts. He was one of the first people to step up and sell off his property to give the money to the apostles for the distribution to the poor. He's been actively involved in the life of the church from the beginning. They send him to Antioch. He gets there, realizes what's going on, and says, man, this church actually does need some help. And so he goes off and finds Paul who's been hiding out in Arabia since his conversion, and brings him back to Antioch. And they serve as kind of the original pastor-teachers of this church, along with the team that we read about here in the beginning of Acts 13. Now, what happened before our text is that there began to be, um, there began to be famine over the, throughout the region of Judea. We actually just read about this. Jesse took us through all of chapter 12 last week, and there was this really brutal scene where a couple of these cities were starving and they were, because of the famine, and they were dependent on a government relief program that wasn't giving them enough relief. And so they're essentially trying to suck up to Herod uh, to get him to give them more food. And Herod's like, yes, continue. And then God drops him dead. It's, it's, it's a brutal scene. And we see this interesting contrast, by the way, between the way the world engages that famine and the way the church engages that famine. Because the world, the Roman Empire, engages that famine by hoarding a bunch of food and distributing it to the people that the leaders like the most, which is what we see happen that leads to Herod's death. The church responds to that famine by gathering together their resources and sending them to people that need them. And when the church in Antioch hears that the church in Jerusalem is involved in a famine, and there's actual need, they gather together as much resources as they can, and they send them by way of Paul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem to distribute. Our story picks up exactly when they get there and drop everything off. They get there, Jesus loves you guys, it's us. Your sister church, the one you planted in Antioch after the persecution, you remember us, right? Anyway, here's some stuff, and they leave. They return once they have completed their service, and they bring back with them this young man, John, whose other name was Mark. We don't know a huge amount about this guy at this point. He's been in the story a couple times. We know his family was involved in the life of the early church in Jerusalem, and uh, church history tells us that he actually became a really vital worker in the, in the early movement of the church, serving as kind of an assistant or ministry assistant under the Apostle Paul and then under Barnabas and then later again under Paul and then under the Apostle Peter. But John Mark is brought back with Paul and Barnabas at Antioch to help. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. They tell us a little bit about this church, they say, hey, here's the people who were leading in this church that were introduced, we already know Barnabas and Paul, but they say this church had prophets and teachers, and we're introduced to Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manan and Saul. These men who were operating as kind of the local elders or pastors of this church who prophesied and taught to them. And it says that they were gathered together, worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, it's real, th- this is kind of the, the little bit of like the, the linguistic piece that we can miss easily in the English. The word they there in verse 2, while they were worshiping, it reads kind of naturally in the English like it's talking about these leaders. But what's actually being said here is essentially the whole church is there, but it's emphasizing that the leaders are leading the church in this movement. I know that's like, why don't they just say that part? It's because it's the word they, but it just has a little more connotation. So these these five men are leading the church in a time of prayer and fasting and worship. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So as this church leads out in a time of worship and prayer and fasting, They hear a very clear and direct command from the Holy Spirit. Take these two leaders and set them aside for the ministry to which I have called them. So they finish their time of prayer and fasting. They lay hands on them and commission them to the work. There's this idea of laying on hands. It's kind of a weird bit of language that we use pretty much just in church world, right? But essentially says that they're they're handing these, they're sending these two men in the authority of this local church. They're essentially saying these two men are going to leave and they're they're going to represent our whole church body in the work that they are doing. They're commissioning them to this task that God has set them aside for, and they go. And, and as we continue on over the next couple weeks, I'm, I'm excited to get into this. The, the work that they've been set aside for is the first great missionary journey that's recorded in Scripture. Now, there were other missions movements that were happening around this same time, but this is the one that the Bible really zones in on, and this is the one that church history has given us the most information about. Th- these guys will literally spend years walking on foot around the Roman empire, going into cities, proclaiming the gospel, and planting churches everywhere they go. And every couple of years, they'll wander back and check in and hang out with their church and leave again and continue the work. And literally, Paul will do this work until he dies. This is, this is a life-changing moment for Paul. Barnabas does this work for a season, and then church history tells us he actually plugs in to a local church and serves as an elder again. But, but Paul Paul's life fundamentally shifts in this moment. He will spend the rest of his life living out the call that this church put on him in this moment through the Holy Spirit. It's pretty intense, right? I love this story, and I love, I love where this story is taking us. It's, it's simple, it's short, it's not terribly controversial, right? It's pretty easy to understand, but it's such a beautiful picture of what God does through His church. So I guess the question then is essentially, what do we do with this? What does this story mean for our church? What does this mean for our faith? And I'm going to go back. I know I've said them a couple times at this point, but I'm going to keep repeating them because I'm hoping we'll actually kind of take these in a little bit. I think there are three specific functions we see of believers in the life of the church in this text. We see the necessity of giving yourself over to the day-to-day mundane ministry of the church. We see how the church gathers to disciple one another, and we see how the church joyfully sends their best on the mission. I'm going to actually start with the second point here. I want to talk about how the church gathers to disciple one another. The literal Greek word when we, when we read the word church in the Bible is this word ecclesia, and it means Gathering. is is the actual meaning of the word, is God's gathered people. It is the absolute heart of what it means to be the church. God's people gathered together. One of the most often quoted verses in all of Scripture regarding the life of the church, I think is really appropriate here. We're going to look at Hebrews 10. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read this to you. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, tells us this. Therefore, brothers... Faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that phrase, do not neglect to gather together as is the habit of some, this is one of those famous passages when it comes to church life, right? Do not neglect the gathering of believers. If you've been around church life for a while, you've probably heard that phrase in some way or another. But I love that it it comes at the end of this chunk of text. You see, in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews is essentially making a transition point and he summarizes the whole teaching up to that point in those couple sentences. And what he essentially says is this, because we have the gospel because we can commune with Jesus confidently, because in Christ we've been made holy and allowed to enter holy places, because we have the gospel, let us draw near to Christ. Let us hold fast to the promises of Jesus. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. And then we get to the famous part. Don't neglect to meet together, but rather meet and encourage one another. Do all that stuff that we already said, love, good works, trusting in Christ, leaning into the promises. Do all that stuff together. Do it together. The truth of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus is at the very heart of why we gather. And what we do when we gather is push each other deeper into the truth of the gospel. We stir one another up into good works. We encourage one another. Beloved, the author of Hebrews is telling us something wonderful here. See, gathering is an unavoidable part of who and what the church is. We are the gathered people of Jesus, but we gather for a purpose. And that purpose is to stir each other up toward love and good works, to grow in faith and dependence on Christ. In other words, we gather to disciple one another. We gather to call each other to deeper dependence on Christ. Do you follow me on this? Discipleship that is the life of following Jesus is not a solo game. You cannot do it on your own. You need brothers and sisters who will love you, who will care for you, who will create safe space for you to be and who will also challenge you and admonish you and encourage you to repent and to grow and participate In your faith, we must be together. We must gather if we are to truly make disciples. See, Acts has shown us since the very beginning from the first chapter, the minute the Spirit came and the work of the church began, the people of God began to gather and pray and worship and dig into the Word and meet each other's practical needs and dig into each other's lives. From the minute the Spirit came and the age of the church began, they were declaring the gospel to one another through their words and through their deeds regularly and in their real life that the gospel changes your schedule, church. The gospel says something about your calendar. It gives us a very specific and powerful reason For our gathering, the purpose of our community is that the gospel of Jesus might be proclaimed in real people's lives. You see, beloved, when it gets down to it, the purpose of our gathering together, the purpose of our community is not community in and of itself. See, this is easy to miss. I miss this one very easily because when we're seeking after Jesus together and proclaiming the gospel in each other's lives, we build this deep, these deep and life-changing friendships. And beyond this, we know that through Christ, we have been adopted into a new family. So when we gather together, we're gathering together with our eternal brothers and sisters, the people with whom we will spend eternity, right? It's so easy for that experience of community to be so good and be so life giving or or, or to look like the potential of it looks so amazing that we begin to desire that as an actual purpose, as an actual end. But the plain fact of it is, it just isn't. That kind of community, that wonderful connection on a soul level to brothers and sisters is a pleasant byproduct of our actual purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus into human lives. This is why we must not forsake the gathering, the purpose of the church, to proclaim the gospel, to to make Jesus knowable and seeable, not just to the lost world, but to each other. And guys, don't miss me on this. When we commit to share time together, blame the gospel in each other's lives, stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging, admonishing, teaching, studying, praying, listen, we will build deep and abiding friendships and we will hear from God. We'll grow in relationship and intimacy with Him. I mean, look at Antioch. They gather to pray and fast and worship. What a beautiful example of exactly what we're talking about. Did they gather together for other reasons? Yeah, almost certainly. I'm sure these people probably liked each other. They probably shared meals. They probably played games. They probably helped each other move furniture. But we're shown in Acts 13 that they met to pray and fast and worship. They met to hear from the Spirit. What a powerful testimony of the life of the church. I know some of us are just uncomfortable with some of these sorts of discussions about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but guys, this is really important. When God's church gathers together in prayer and worship, they hear from the Spirit. They hear from God because God's Spirit guides and directs His church. It's a good Examination to ask yourself when the last time was that you specifically gathered together with your brothers and sisters for the purpose of worship and prayer and seeking the Spirit. I know some of you are like, I'm doing that right now. I know. But I'm talking about scheduling something, putting something together where you're just like, man, whew, I just need some Jesus time with my brothers and sisters. When was the last time that was something that that burdened you when you added it to your calendar? And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that as a challenge to go, "This this is why we gather. It's why we are drawn together. Yes, we build friendships. Hopefully those friendships span lifetimes. Hopefully those friendships change you. But above all, we must never forget that we are to proclaim the gospel in each other's lives. We must disciple each other. We must seek God together. But the church doesn't just gather to proclaim the gospel to one another. The church also scatters. We don't just gather together. We also leave that gathering and we go and we proclaim the gospel, not just to each other, but to the world. Which is why the church joyfully sends their best into the mission. In our text, we saw this amazing thing where, where their time gathered together actually led them to picking out some of their leaders to send out into the world. I mean, what a, what a cool idea. <laughs> what, what, what a cool concept. I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine if Paul was one of your teaching elders. Now look, we have great elders. I think I, think I do an okay job preaching but if you had the guy who wrote Romans on your preaching schedule and then you were sitting in a prayer meeting and someone was like, I think we should just send him off. You know what I'm saying? Like, just have him like walk to California and talk to people about Jesus over there. I don't know about you guys. I wouldn't necessarily be stoked on that in the moment. I'd be like, "No, I kind of like, I mean, he wrote Romans. I kind of like that guy here, but this is what the church does. They send him off for years at a time to go serve other believers and other churches. What an amazing picture of the reality of the kingdom. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. I actually want you guys to look at this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn your Bibles over there. We're going to start in verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11, it says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is Paul writing, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your consciousness. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, and those that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And for our sake, sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Come on. I know that's a long passage, but I think you guys get the thrust of it. Jesus has reconciled us to God. We are no longer counted or defined by our sin, but rather by Jesus' righteousness. This is the amazing gospel message. Lord willing, this is what we are proclaiming and inviting each other into every time we gather together. You're no longer defined by your sin. You are defined by the righteousness of Christ. He has done this work on your behalf. You are a new creation. The old is gone. You are free in Him. Come forth in that freedom. what we do when we gather. But we know this. That message is not just for the church. We know that's true, because there was a point when we were not in the church, and we were dead, and someone brought that amazing message to us and said, come, have life, have freedom. God has done something new. God God wants to reconcile all peoples to himself through Jesus, all peoples, you and I, the ones who are already in Christ. We are the ambassadors. We've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Look what the, look what the text says. Let me reread this. God making his appeal through us. I mean, do you hear this? The gospel message must be proclaimed amongst us. We must gospel one another when we gather. You must disciple each other when we gather, but it cannot terminate on us. It can't end with us. This message is for the whole world. We must scatter and proclaim this message. We must scatter and make disciples of all peoples. We must send. We must leave our gathering and take the beautiful gospel invitation with us to those who need it. Because the church at Antioch gathered, they sought the Spirit, they gospeled each other, and in that context, what did God tell them? As they were together, worshiping and praying and fasting, what did God tell them? To send their best out into the lost and dead world. What a testimony to the power of the gospel. They heard from God, and he didn't speak into their individual holiness or the programming of their church or the clarity of their church's mission statement or how good their vision was or how polished their website was or the quality of their live stream. I'm sorry. He spoke, and he sent out their best into the world to make disciples. So, if we think on it for a moment, it makes sense, right? We must gather together. We inherently know this. The church is God's gathered people. But we must scatter. We exist as a gathering to draw more people into the gathering. We we exist as a church for our non-members. So we have to go out and invite them into the life we've received in Christ. So what do we actually do with this? I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that most of us would not argue with what I've said up to this point. It's pretty approachable. Yeah, we should gather and disciple each other. Yeah, we should go out and proclaim the message to those who need it. I think the disconnect and the the kind of the question that arises is essentially, uh, yeah, cool, but, but how? I mean, for most of us, Let's be honest for a minute. Even if you are super plugged into the life of the church and totally plugged into your GC, maybe even especially more so over the last year, right? For most of us, this is just not our default experience of church and faith. I'm willing to bet that most of us are not often experiencing the kind of gathering that we read about and imagine the early church engaged in. And I know from discussion a lot of us are not regularly living out this sort of super bold, sent, proclaim the message to the lost all around us kind of life. I don't say that to be negative or to be mean to you guys. I know that most of us desire these things. Most of us are seeking to grow in our faith, and we want to experience community, and most of us want to be on mission. It just often feels like whatever it is we're doing just kind of falls short of what we read about? So what's actually to be done? I mean, is this just a pep talk of me talking through some kind of amazing ideal of the church that we can all amen and then leave here knowing that's not actually going to be what our experience is like? Because that sounds kind of (laughs) terrible. That brings me to my third point and where we're going to actually land this. This is the first point I gave you guys in the overview because it actually goes first. But I'm ending with it because we so rarely start here. And that's this. The necessity of giving yourself over to the regular, mundane, day-to-day ministry and life of the church. Guys, Paul and Barnabas got sent on one of the most important and amazing missions in all of human history. I know that's dramatic to say it that way, but I'm dead serious. They helped start God's church all over the Roman Empire. These men's ministry helped start the first ever recorded church in the little continent we call Europe. I don't know about you guys, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess most of us have some faith heritage connected to the gospel moving forward in Europe. This is insane. We're going to spend the next several months talking about the amazing journeys God is going to send these folk on. But here's the deal, guys. They didn't just magically get here. They didn't just wake up one morning and go, oh, you need someone to go to Europe? I'll do that one. No. No. These men were deeply plugged into the normal, regular, mundane life of the church. They were faithfully serving in their gifts, faithfully showing up, faithfully doing the hard, messy work of ministry. That whole gather and proclaim the gospel to each other thing, guys, that doesn't happen quickly, and it doesn't happen easily. If you've spent any time in any of our small groups, our gospel communities, you already know that. Gospel work is slow. Gospel work is hard, and gospel work is messy. You don't just have this magical moment in GC where someone confesses, I'm struggling with this. And you go, but Jesus freed you from that. And they go, that's amazing. I didn't know that. And they never deal with it again. Maybe that happens. That doesn't happen often, guys. Usually that confession comes out and you preach the gospel to them. They go, thank you so much for that. And the next week they come back. And if they're being honest, they confess the same thing and you share the gospel with them again, and they say thank you for that. And the next week, they come back, and if they're being honest, they confess the same thing. And you share the gospel with them, and at that time, they don't say thank you for it. And the next week, if they come back and they're being honest, they confess the same thing, and you share the gospel with them, and this time they get mad at you, and say you've shared this four times, and it hasn't done anything. And then you share the gospel again. And the next week, if they come back, they confess the same thing, and then tell you not to share the gospel with them, because it's upsetting them, because it doesn't do anything. So you tell them you love him and you pray with him and you share the gospel again and you repeat that for months and years and slowly God does the work of changing hearts and that person grows up in maturity and freedom and 10 years later without you even realizing it, they come back to you and say, thank you so much for your faithful ministry. God has spoken through you and I'm actually walking in freedom in that area and I didn't even realize that I had taken that step to freedom. It was so slow and gradual, but, but I was reflecting in my time with Christ today and thought of that first time i brought this confession to you and that that one time that i got mad at you and like cursed you out in the middle of a small group and how far god has brought me in the last 10 years because that's the mundane messy day-to-day work of ministry and that's what these guys were already doing guys barnabas was the one who took the risk and brought paul to see the apostles when he converted to christ Barnabas was already plugged into the benevolence ministry of the church, giving up his resources to help people who didn't have food. Paul went off and spent time faithfully being discipled by believers and pastors you've never heard of for literal years in quiet, with no credit. These men were the ones who were sent to go and deliver a check because the church needed someone to deliver benevolence ministry. These are the kind of guys who stayed late to stack chairs at church. These are the kind of guys who showed up to their small group over and over, proclaiming the gospel over and over to people caught in habitual patterns and people caught in depression. These are men who faithfully did the work so that when the need arose to send someone to go on the biggest mission in human history since Jesus, God knew who to send. didn't just magically happen. Paul's going to go on this missionary journey and start a whole bunch of churches. And a couple years later, he's going to come back to Antioch. And while he's in Antioch, he's going to write a letter and send it off to these churches because instantly they're struggling and being persecuted. It's a letter called Galatians. We have it. And in the closing section of that letter, Paul says this to those churches. This is in Galatians chapter 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Beloved of Jesus, do not grow weary. I know that's a big ask. I know after the year of life that a lot of us have had, that's a really big ask. But guys, the work of ministry is hard. It's slow. It's messy. It's tiring. So don't grow weary. Beloved, stick with it. Show up. Proclaim the gospel. Love those who are in your circle. Seek after God. Joyfully send your best out to do the work. Beloved, this is the work that you and I have been called to. I'm going to end with this image and we'll pray because I've gone over. When I shared this last fall, I shared a couple of images with you guys, and I'm going to repeat one of them right now. this. In the game of football, which you can tell I'm hardcore about sports, but in the game of football, in between plays, the offense does this little thing called a huddle. I used to play football, and I played center, and the center calls the huddle, and all the guys get together, and you know they're all circled up, and they're kind of like hyping each other up, and it's this moment, and it just takes a couple minutes, where the court actually less than that, a couple seconds, where the quarterback rebukes them for what they did wrong, tells them the plan for the next play, and then sends them to go do it. And it happens really quick. And they even have code words so they can do it faster. But the huddle happens in between each play. But here's what's amazing. The huddle is vitally important. Without the huddle, the team doesn't do well. But the huddle's not the game. The huddle's not the game. The game happens at the line when the ball moves forward. The huddle just helps them get there. So yeah, we've got to huddle. We've got to get together together. We've got to do that faithful grind of ministry and work together. But guys, there is a work out there. There is a world outside of our huddle waiting to hear the gospel message. So let us be a people who faithfully, faithfully come into the huddle, who do the hard work, the stuff you don't get credit for, the stuff that's not fun, the stuff that takes forever. let us also be a people who step out of the huddle and go and actually play the game, amen? I'm going to ask the band to come up and I'm going to pray for us. And here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do. I'm going to pray and they're just going to immediately start singing a song to us. I want to encourage you to join me in this prayer. Consider what God might be telling to you. Consider, I mean, just genuinely like what was just shared. How, how, How actually dedicated are you? of the mundane, boring life of the church? How given over are you? How much are you willing to repeat the same step over and over and over of just faithfully proclaiming the word with each other in here and out there? I'm just going to ask you guys, as they sing, reflect on that truth. Just see what the Spirit tells you. and when, If and when you feel led, you can join them in the song. And when the song's over, we're going to take communion together and celebrate the goodness of our Lord but I'm going to pray for us and they're going to sing and I would encourage you guys just join me in this. Father, you are so long suffering. Every single time I consider my story, I come back to that phrase over and over and over. That you stuck with me. And you continue to chase after me in spite of my rebellion, in spite of my pride, in spite of my constantly running to the same sin patterns over and over and over. And just my my stupid cycle of returning back again to things that I know don't fit. The spitting in your face of praying confession and then walking away and doing the same thing. God, you never gave up on me. You chased after cannot comprehend your patience your your endurance the fact that you did not grow weary in your pursuit of me God may we be a people who do not grow weary may we give ourselves over to the work because it's worth it because you've done it for us Because we know what your gospel does. And what could be better than more celebrating at the wedding feast of the Lamb? God, speak to our hearts, convict, draw us to you. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name.